When I was last here, we, I spoke to you about important people. And I spoke to you about children and how important they are in God's kingdom. And you will remember also that we have priorities in our lives. And those priorities we've simply put before us. Can anybody remember what the five priorities are in our lives? God, number one. That anybody should be able to get that. I mean, that, number two, yourself, to make sure we're walking with God. Number three, family. Number four, ministry. And number five, work. Those are all important, but we approach them in that order. And after ourselves, our family, which includes children, comes next. Because family matters and children are very, very important people in God's eyes. Well, this morning I want to look at some more important peoples. And I want to look at children and parents this morning in relation to the Bible. Should be the next slide up there. Okay. Now, I want to take you to Israel next. And for some reason, the color isn't great on there. I don't know what's happened to it, but maybe something's changed in the mailing over. Take a look at this photograph here. It's a bit dark. I don't know if you can see with the lights there, but there's a lady there, and she's touching something on a wall. Now, the wall is actually a doorway. And the doorway is one of the gates into Jerusalem where we visited on our trip there. And what she's touching is a box with a scroll in it, and it goes by the name of a mezuzah. Now, technically speaking, the mezuzah isn't the box, but people call it the box. But inside is a scroll. And normally, when I'm preaching and speaking, I like to start by reading out the scripture first. But this morning... I'm going to show you a couple of slides before I do that, and you'll see why as we go along. Let's look at the next slide. Here's Sally's photographs from when we were out on Thursday, Friday night in Jerusalem. We went to the famous Wailing Wall. And you'll see here a Jewish boy coming to his bar mitzvah, this coming-of-age ceremony, and you'll see he's wearing something strapped to his head and strapped to his left arm. And that's called in Hebrew tefillin. Phylacteries is the English word. I think tefillin's easier for personally. But those boxes, like the mezuzah, contain something. They contain a piece of God's law which you tie to your head to represent having God's word in your mind. And you tie to your arm to represent having God's word at hand every moment of your life. And what they do is they draw the box across They put it on their left arm, and they draw it across their heart when they pray. And when they pray, they recite the words that are inside the little parchment, the little scroll that's inside those boxes. They they say it out loud. And when you go to the Wailing Wall, you can see these guys doing this. And we went there, and there's a screen up, and the ladies aren't allowed inside with the men, are they? They have to sit outside, and Sally was up on a plastic deck chair looking over the top of the screen and taking photographs, as naughty ladies would do. Um... So she got this photograph here. Here's another one looking down behind the guy. Let's look at the next slide. And you can clearly see that box on, his, on the front of his head and just the, the band around his left arm there as he's reading this Hebrew prayer book. I got told off because I had my Hebrew Bible out electronically and you're not allowed to light fires on a Sabbath. And so I got severely reprimanded by somebody there. But anyway, there we go. Now, here is what is in 
those boxes. There's a piece of parchment, and if we go to the next slide, you'll see what's inside. It's this. Here it is in the Hebrew language. And it's called the Shema, which in Hebrew means to listen or to obey or to hear. And written on that scroll is our passage for this morning. It's Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 to 9. So if we go to the next slide, you'll see it come up on the screen there in English. We're going to read it. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. These words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your sons and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontals on your forehead. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Let's pray, shall we? Father, speak to us now by your word. And Lord, that word we've said there, Shema, which means to hear, to listen, and to obey all at once. We pray that will be our response, that we will hear, that we will listen, and we'll obey in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so this is a statement of who God is. And then it's a statement of how we should relate to him. And it's right at the center of the Jewish faith and religion. And in the New Testament, Jesus gives it as the greatest commandment, along with loving your neighbor as yourself. So it's really, really key to the whole of Scripture and the whole heart of Scripture that we understand what this is about. And... In a word, it's the word love. Love is at the heart of this scripture and what we'll be speaking about today. Let me give you three points that I would like you to note from this passage before we move on. First of all, it's this. It's got to be in you. It's got to be in our hearts and not anywhere else. The word of God and our relationship with God has got to get to the deepest depths of our lives so that we can really get a hold of it and truly grasp it. It's no good having it out there. Now, without trying to be critical of what's going on in modern Judaism, you notice they are doing these things literally. They're tying boxes with the scripture onto their head and onto their arms. And you appreciate the heart of that, but it's got to get deeper than that. It's got to go from the outside to the inside. And if our walk with God consists of a load of things on the outside, then we've got what we would call religion, externalism. But if it gets from the outside right to the inside into our hearts, then we've got true spirituality, a true walk with God. So that's what we're about. The second thing is this. Not only has it got to be in us, deep in our hearts, we've got to pass it on. Can you see that in this same passage that's on the same piece of parchment that's tied to their hands and their heart and their head? It says there, you shall teach them diligently to your sons and talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way, when you lie down and when you rise up. It's got to be passed on. God's word is what we pass on, not our opinion. 
and we pass on the true word of God to the next generation, to our children. That's what we're here for. As well as loving God ourselves, it's essential as part of that love that when it gets into our hearts, it comes out of our hearts and into somebody else. Now, well, we'll come back there in a moment. Okay. You notice it says there, teach diligently. Now, various versions translate this phrase in different ways, but the Hebrew word there means sharp. Now, probably a good English word would be incisive. And if somebody speaks to you in an incisive way, that means it goes right deep into you, right into your heart. And that's what the Bible says in the New Testament about the Word of God, isn't it? It's, it's living and active and sharp as any two-edged sword. It uses the same word there. The Word of God has got to come out of our lives and into the lives of others. Now let me see if I can explain this to you. Many of you remember from years ago, or you may have seen it as a, as a golden oldie, the film Karate Kid. And in it, the, the, the young Italian-American boy, Daniel LaRusso, tries to learn karate from a book because the guys are bullying him at school. And so he's got the book open there and he's trying to do all these kicks and maneuvers. And step one, lift knee. Step two, swing leg up from... I mean, and he's struggling with this. And then Mr. Miyagi comes in to mend the tap, what the Americans call the faucet. And he says, oh, you're learning karate, are you? Now, Mr. Miyagi knows karate. But you understand it's not in a book for him it's in him. And he says, how did you, later on in the film, he says, how did you learn that? He said, well, fa my father taught me. Father teach. How did you know that, Mr. Miyagi? Father teach. You see, for Mr. Miyagi, it's not something he gets a book and tries to learn mechanically. It's something that's in his family that was passed on to him in daily life. So when he comes to teach Daniel karate, Instead of sending him to a gym to lift weights and do things, what does he make him do? Can you remember the film? He has to wax all the cars. Wax on, wax off. Breathe in through nose, out through mouth. Ah, oh, Daniel-san, now do all cars. And there's this big lot full of cars. Wax on, wax off. Don't forget to breathe. And then the next day he comes back and he has to sand all the floors. Circle, little circle, Daniel-san. Round and round. Oh, no, like this. Oh, no. And then he, then he looks and sees all the wood he has to sand. There's a week's worth of sanding there. In through nose, out through mouth. Don't forget to breathe. Then the third day he comes, he has to nail on all these planks. And he's aching. He says, I'm fed up with this. I want to learn karate. And you've made me clean your cars and sand your wood and nail your fence up. But those everyday lessons turn out to be the very things he needs to, to, to know in order to learn karate. But he's learning it in the context of everyday real life, not from a book. He's learning it from a person, not by going step one, step two and reading the book himself. And this is the same way we learn the scripture and the word of God. We learn it from people. We learn it through people. It's not just in a book. It's in a person made alive. And then you can refer to the book as it's being made alive through that person and their example and their teaching in life. And it says there we're to teach diligently. We're to be sharp. This has got to go right to the heart. This comes out of your heart and goes into the heart of the person you're teaching. By the way, this works for disciples and selves as well. It's not just for parents and children. 
anybody that's teaching anybody else, this is the best way to pass it on. But it's got to be in you. And then you've got to be effective and really take the lesson right to the heart. And then the final thing I want to point out from here, it's got to be a whole life thing. You notice when you do this. This is not a Saturday morning Bible study. This is not a tea time preach from dad to the rest of the family while everybody sits there bored. Now, there may be a place for those things, but that's not the setting here. This is when you rise up in the morning. This is when you go to bed at night. This is when you're sitting in the house. I never imagined Jewish people sitting in the house much because they don't have televisions in those days, but obviously they did sit in the house. Maybe when you're eating and dining. This is when you walk and when you go out to work. This covers every part of life. Rising, sleeping, going out and doing stuff, coming home and doing stuff. Out there at work with your friends and mates, in the family home setting. Everywhere you are, the Word of God should be alive in your heart and coming out of you into your children. And everything should be possible to be a lesson. Now, what do I mean? Well, Adam, where's Adam? You won't mind if I use this little example, will you? But I was round uh, Ben's house Friday, and we were talking about something. And we were talking about cars. And Adam said, well, Karis asked me to check the water in the car but that's not really my thing. You know, I, I didn't really know how to do it. So I saw my chance with Mr. Miyagi there. I thought, right, we'll drop this job here. Let's take you out to the car. This is your chance to be a better prospect for a husband now, uh, if, you can, uh, if you can do the water and the oil in the car. So Adam had to endure 10 to 15 minutes of me lecturing him about what was under the bonnet of the car and how to take the oil filler off and fill it and take the dipstick out and fill the various levels in the car and what to touch and what not to touch. See, that's how you do it. There's an opportunity. We'll take it straight away. Ben comes in a bit later, and we're changing the tires on the pushchair. And Ben's saying, how come you can get the, the inner tube in without pinching it and without you know, putting the tire leaves in and pinching it so that when you try to inflate the tire, there's a leak in it? And I said, well, father teach, like Mr. Miyagi. When we were kids, the main mode of transport was that wonderful thing, a bicycle. We were all fitter and healthier in those days, I think. Anyway, perhaps we were. But you know, everybody's dad had a bicycle. And every, all the time you had punctures. So one of the things our fathers taught us was how to fix a puncture in a bicycle tire. I mean, it's a missing kind of talent these days, isn't it? But that's what we used to do. And so um, our dads taught us that when you put the tire back on, you, you, you put the inner tube in, feel it in its way around, and then you put a little bit of air into the inner tube before you put the next part of the tire on, and that pushes the inner tube up into the top of the tire and out of the way of the tire levers so you don't snag it. Father, teach. Now, you can learn that from a book, I guess, but it's much easier if your dad's there actually showing you how to do it. And in my day, the fathers in the neighborhood used to say, right, I'm changing a tire, you, and not just me, but all my mates in the street, come and watch me do it. And then when John's dad over the road did it, we had to watch him do it. And eventually we learned how to do it for ourselves. And by the age of 11, I was fixing the punctures and the tires, and my dad never had to do them. He just told me to do it. That's how you learn. That's how you make it your own. And this is the setting that we're talking about here. Every part of life can be turned into a marvelous opportunity to learn for the kingdom of God, for God's word, for God's heart and spirit to be in us. So that's the setting there. Every day, Jewish men are to pray this prayer three times a day. They bind these phylacteries or tefillin on, and they say this in Hebrew. 
And it's part of it to pass it on to the next generation. Let's go and look at a, a parallel scripture here in Deuteronomy 11. And put that one up. We'll read this one through. You shall therefore impress these words of mine on your heart and on your soul, and you shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontals on your forehead. You shall teach them to your sons, talking of them when you sit in your house and when you walk along the road and when you lie down and when you rise up. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates so that your days and the days of your sons may be multiplied on the land which the Lord swore to your fathers to give them as long as the heavens remain above the earth. Now that mezuzah I showed you in the first picture is placed on the right-hand doorpost two-thirds of the way up. And it's there so that when you walk in and out of any door in Israel, every hotel door has one. Even the gates of Jerusalem have them. They're all over the place. And you walk through the door, and what you should do is touch it. Kiss it like that, reminding yourself, I'm just about to walk into the family home. I'm going to conduct myself according to what's written in that scroll inside the very box I've touched. You go to work in the morning. As you walk out the door, you touch it. I'm going to go to work and live according to the, the word that's in that scroll. Every door you pass through, I'm going to live according to God's word in this room, in this house, in this place where I'm going. You'll see the little boxes have a, a funny shape on it. It's like a, a three, it looks like a crown. It's a three-pronged letter. It's the letter Shin in Hebrew. And it's the first letter of Shaddai or Almighty. I'm going to live according to the Almighty. I'm going to honor God through his word in what I do as I pass through this door. Everywhere we go, the word of God should be in play in our lives. And as it says there, we're not just doing this for ourselves. We're teaching this to our sons, spiritual and natural. You'll have your children with you, your disciples with you, and you say, Let, let's do it according to the word of God. And you show them how, whether it's changing a tire, filling the water in the car, or praying for somebody. It's, it's that discipleship where it comes out of your heart and incisively sharp into their lives. Look at what it says here. Impress the word of God. And it's a different word to the last verse. It means to put, to place, to arrange, to establish, to set up. Now that means we as individuals have to take time to establish the word of God in our lives. It won't just happen unless we give attention to it. And we've got to set time aside and set uh, activities aside that will establish the word of God into our lives. And we will live by that word and not according to the world around us. And let me make you a confident prediction for the future. This is where the trouble will be. In future, we will probably head for more trouble in Western Europe and it will be over this issue. Am I living and thinking and speaking according to the word of God or not. And you will find people will call themselves Christians and will not actually be bothered much to live their lives according to the word of God. And you'll find their lives are pretty much like everybody else's. But you'll find other people who call themselves Christians who say, no, I am going to live by this word and I confidently predict in one word what will come their way, trouble. Because that's what the difference is, is when we live by the word of God. Now, have a look at this. Um you'll see again this call to teach the word of God to our children. And it's the same four times in life. Rising, sleeping, going out, 
coming in. And I want to say this to you today. If you are a parent, it's the call of God on your life to make sure you teach the Word of God to your children. And as I was preparing this, I felt God say this simple phrase to me. It's your responsibility and yours alone. It is not the responsibility of the government of the land to teach the Word of God to your children for you. It is not the responsibility of the church, although we can help you. It is your responsibility and yours alone. Now, that's a challenge in our age because most people around today are kind of questioning what is their responsibility and what isn't and are quite happy for somebody else to take on the responsibility, it seems. But God is clear. If you're a parent, you're the one that has the privilege, the wonder, and the responsibility to live by this word and establish it in, our, in your own life and then to pass it on, Mr. Miyagi style, if you like, into the lives of our children lives of your children and that is what we're responsible for and nobody else is tasked to do that job for us God is very very clear in his word we've read it twice here already today it's the parents responsibility so we can't leave it to others and we can't just say well let them do it and that just doesn't include breakfast or a family quiet time it includes the whole of life and it actually includes what activities our children do? Am I sending them to girl guides or boy scouts? What's going on there? Do I know? Do I care? Well, the answer is we should know and we should care. It needs to be consistent with the Word of God and the way we want to bring our children up. If it's not, we may have to re-examine whether it's suitable for our children to be there. And here's the big one, school. I was a school teacher, as you know, for 15 years. And most of my colleagues believed it was the responsibility of the government to bring children up and educate them and not parents. And they believed that the only people that could do this were official state schools, that no other school in the land could or should have the right to do that. And I have to say, I couldn't have agreed less with them. It's not the responsibility of government. It's the responsibility of parents. And governments should only be supporting and backing up the responsibility of parents rather than taking the place of parents in that regard. That's my opinion. Um, you know, obviously you can make of that what you will, but you know, I'll just go my way and the Lord's and you can go, you know, I'm, I'm going to make a joke there. But I'm not gonna. No, seriously though, I do believe the scripture puts the responsibility first and foremost and principally on the parents. And it's something we can't redefine, we can't run away from it. It's there in black and white for us all to see. Now, here's a little tip for you. If it works, it says there on the bottom line on my script, as long as the heavens above the earth. Well, the Hebrew there says, as the days of heaven on the earth. In other words, if we get this right, it will be heaven on earth. That's the reward. If you want to know what heaven's like, go to a family that's running really well in the Lord, and you will experience heaven on earth. How about that? Do you know, I became a believer in God through one visit to a family that was reflecting Christ. I was a confirmed, what I would call Marxist and scientific atheist. I did not believe in God and nothing could convince me. But one visit to a family home of a Christian family changed my mind. I never told anybody at the time, but I went, in that fa I went into that home thinking one thing, 
I came out firmly convinced that I was wrong. And nobody preached to me at all. I just watched and saw some of the days of heaven on earth. And it convinced me in my heart, this God is real. That's how powerful this is when we can actually do it. But of course, if we manage to get it wrong, it's not always heaven on earth. It can be something else, which I won't say, but you understand what I'm getting at there. So how do we do this? How then do we manage to pass on in, in, a, in a heart, spirit, Holy Ghost anointed way, our heart for the word of God into our children? I'll tell you why this is so important. If the church is to survive into the future and really grow, it's essential not only that we save the lost out there, but that we keep our own families and win them for the Lord Jesus Christ as well. God, I believe, gives us children to win for him. I don't believe they should be lost for him. Now, some children do go away. We understand that. But I believe that the, the heart of God is for that not to happen. I believe it's the heart of the enemy to send them away. And obviously, it's the heart of God to bring them back. Ours is a faith where the sons come back. But really, we'd rather they didn't go away in the first place. When they come back, they smell pretty bad. They've wasted all that money and all that time. They can often come back in a real state and mess. So it's better that they never go away at all. So I want to give you a little bit more, four sort of helpful things as to how to do this in life. Let's see the next slide. And it really is between these two things. Do we have spiritual duties or is it real day-to-day -day life as we've been experiencing here? This is not some Bible study that you give your kids once a week and hope it's going to work for them. Actually, I don't believe that's particularly effective. It's, it's okay to do, but on its own, I'm not particularly convinced. That will win your children and bring them up in God's ways and really give them a heart for the things of God. Can I just say also that if you're a single parent, God is with you. And whether you're a single parent or uh, a couple together, or whether you, you know, you've inherited children from another marriage, God is with you in that too. And here's the thing. We as church leaders want to stand with you in the bringing up of your children. But one of the most sensitive areas with adults is the bringing up of their children. And I have found consistently over the years, it is the hardest thing to speak to as either a church leader or as a school teacher. Parents are very, very defensive about the behavior of their children. And the reason they're defensive about it is twofold or threefold. First of all, there is this unspoken expectation that we're all supposed to be experts at this thing, when clearly we're not, and we ought to be honest about that. We could all do with some help. I have had plenty of help over the years in the bringing up of my children, and I've only ever profited and benefited by it. Secondly, we are often unwilling to confront an issue in our children because it's the same issue in us. We haven't confronted it and dealt with it in our own lives, and therefore we're unwilling to deal with it in our children. And thirdly, there is something sensitive and touchy about children where parents are incredibly protective. I remember a boy who would, uh, he, he refused to stay behind school for a detention. Uh, he just ran out of the lesson. And so the teacher was pretty alarmed about this, came to see to me because I was his tutor. And along with the deputy head, I asked the parents to come in and, and speak to us about this matter. So the dad comes in with the mother, and they sat with the deputy head, and he sort of did most of the talking. And they basically shouted at him and said, my boy is a good boy. 
he wouldn't do anything wrong and he'd never lie to his mum. And I had to say to him, ma'am, if you believe your child has never lied to you, you're the most naive parent I've ever come across on earth. It's the teenage disease to lie to their parents. It's the default mode. I've been doing this for years now. Trust me, your kids will lie to you. And she wouldn't have it. And then the father said, I'm not hearing anything of this. And he stomped out of the office just like his son did. Do you see what happens? The same problem that was in the father was there in the son. And one of the most embarrassing things as a parent is to see your issues come out in your children. And we've gone 30, 40 years without dealing with them in our own lives. Then we see our children behaving like it, and we're even less willing to deal with it because it makes us feel bad and guilty. A, because we didn't deal with it in our own lives, and B, because we haven't dealt with it in theirs. So we'd rather say, back off. And year by year, as church leaders and pastors, and I've been in many different church settings now in my ministry and life, I've come across this consistently, even in good churches, the parents do not want the pastors to say something or the school teachers to say something. And you would not believe how Christian parents, how unreceptive they are with this. Can I appeal to you? Please don't be like that with us. We are not here to interfere. We're not here to make you feel bad. We are here to help. And if there's a problem, please feel you can come and say, And we need you to say to us first. Now, some things, as you know by my temperament, I'll come and confront you first. You know, I don't need an invitation. I'll just come marching in. But other things, we need an invitation. And this is one of them. With your kids, we need you to invite us. Because when we actually say what the trouble is, a reaction's going to go off in you, I promise. And you're going to say, you can't interfere with my life. Like, Will you ask me? Okay? So I need to be able to say that. Will you ask me? Listen, we will help you. We will help you every way we can, especially single parents. It's hard work doing this on your own. It's hard work doing this as a couple. Where you've got a family that's two halves of other families come together, that's hard work too. And there are particular skills that I think God's been gracious to to let me see over the years that, again, we could help you with. So we're offering you our best heart, our best help. But you've got to have to come and ask and, and work with us on this. And please, dads, don't wait too long. Men are notorious for putting off asking for help, whether it's directions in a car or whether it's help in the family home. But we're here to help. Is that fair? Good, okay. Now, let's go on to the next slide then. I want to show you four ways we pass on our faith, our culture, our view of the world from the Bible. And I'm grateful here to the Bishop of Durham, Tom Wright. This is his sort of scheme and diagram. But it kind of reflects the scriptures we've been... been on. And here are four ways that we pass on our worldview to our children. And you'll notice none of them, per se, is a once a week Bible study. This is from the whole of life. So I'm going to go through these in turn for a few minutes just to give us some ideas. The first one is this our story. Can we turn to that slide, please. Do you have a story of your walk with God? that means everything to you. Because your children need to see that you do. Your children need to see that this means everything to you. They need to see that once I was blind and now I can see. Once I was like St. Paul, a sinner, but God met me on my Damascus road and he turned my life around and I've been different ever since and I've been living my life like Paul said, I've not been disobedient to the heavenly vision. We need a story. Do you know the Jewish people are really keen on this? Every year at Passover, they rehearse the history of Israel. 
and the coming out of Egypt and the deliverance from the hand of Pharaoh and slavery. And all of those miracles, all of that miraculous event is celebrated in the Passover festival. And they tell it each year like it was happening to them right now. They don't say, this is what happened to your great, 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 great grandmother. They say, this is like it is today. It's retold as if they were in the middle of it. Do you have a story? Do you have a story that matters to you? Well, it's important that that story is told to your children. My father had a story, and as a non-Christian, he sat me down, and for three years it took, it, told him to, it took him to tell me his story. But I feel connected with him because of his story. I feel I understand his values because of his story. I feel I understand what made him him because of his story. And while other kids were out playing around the block and playing football, I was inside gripped, gripped by my father's story. Let me tell you a little bit. Here's my father's story. He did not believe in God. He believed in the power of the worker. Quite a communist revolutionary, my dad. And he is with another man running across a field with no shoes on, no weapons, and he's being fired at with machine guns. And as he's running, he can hear and feel the wind of the bullets. They come past his ears and catch the flaps of his clothing. My father was marooned behind enemy lines for 19 days. On the run, he saw every single companion killed in front of him, but he managed to escape. And as he was escaping, he was chased, and this is what happened to him. And he said, as I was running across the field, I was praying, God, please don't let them get me. God, save me from this moment. And he said, as I was running, I could feel the bullets coming past the flaps of my clothing. Not, they sprayed the, the field with machine gun fire, and not a single bullet touched him. And he said, God, if you'll get me out of this, I'll give my life to you when I get back to England. Well, God kept his end of the deal. It took my dad rather a long time to keep his end of the deal. But God got him in the end. So he had a story, and that story gripped me because I wouldn't be here without that part of his story. I am the extension of that prayer. It means something to me. And it will to your children. And your struggles in life. And your journey in life. And your walk with God. And the things you've come through are not just for you. They're for you to tell the next generation because they need to take part in the struggles you've taken part in to see how much trouble it took for God to get them into the world. I nearly didn't make it on a number of occasions. After my father was behind enemy lines for 19 days, he eventually got back to his own lines. He was patted on the back by a general. He said, well done, son. And then as he was walking out of that tent to go and get something to eat, he collapsed. Three days later, he woke up. He was sick with malaria. He was treated with a brand new drug called quinine at the time. And somewhere in all of that, he'd been bitten by a mosquito that had given him this infection. And when he came back to this country, he was still sick. And he used to get these shivers and shakes. So he's still on medication. And one day, he had his, his old ex-army motorcycle that he bought, a Royal Enfield 350. He's driving down a road in Oxford, and he starts to shiver and shake. And he's on his way to the chemist to get his medication. He never made it. He fell off the motorbike. And he just collapsed on the side of the street. 
And a bus was overtaking at the time and stopped because the driver saw him. And people on the bus rushed out because it was all open in those days. Remember the, the back door where you could run and jump on and off? Those were the days, weren't they? And um, they jumped out of the bus. They picked him up. And one of the people that picked him up says, well, I know a chemist that's still open because it was gone 6 o'clock now. Um, my, one of my family members works in this chemist. We can get you your medication. So they took him to the chemist, knocked on the door. The chemist opened up because it was a family member and gave him the medication. Two days later, my dad went back to say thank you to that person with a bunch of flowers, and then he married her. <laughs> that was my mother. That's how they met. See, a mosquito bite somewhere in Burma, or India, wherever it was, led to my father falling off his bike, has led to me being here. If that mosquito hadn't bitten my dad, I wouldn't be here this morning, nor would any of you. You're all the product of a mosquito bite this morning. I just want you to know that. What great things God has done to get us to where we are. You see, listen, our story matters. Do you understand? I don't feel my life is some kind of accident where I got saved. I feel I'm part of a, a, a train of events. I feel I should have got saved. I feel God went to a lot of trouble to answer the prayers of my communist, non-believing father to get me here, to get you here. Listen, our story matters, and our kids need to hear our story because they're in the story. They're writing the story. It's their history. Could you imagine waking up tomorrow and not remembering who you are? Could you imagine forgetting everything up to that point, having like spiritual amnesia? Where do I come from? What do I do today? Who do I know? Your kids will be like that if you don't tell them the story. That's the first thing. Second thing. Our practices. Now, what we do is important. And we're not talking about religious practices here per se. We're talking about how our faith expresses itself in our lives. Because if there's nothing different in our lives, then what's the point of being a Christian? Why should I be the same as that person out there and live my life the same way, but just have to give up Sunday morning every week? I mean, it seems like a bad deal, doesn't it? They can all have a lie, and I've got to sit and listen to this preacher guy. This is about what we do in our daily lives. Let me see if I can give you some help here in examples. Richard, when he was here as a, as a young lad at school, used to like to go camping. I made it my business to take him and his friends on all the camping trips and drop them off in the middle of nowhere and pick them up filthy and smelly and smoking of fire, smelling of fire in the morning with all their gear, slopped in the back of my vehicle, making a mess everywhere, because none of the other dads would do it. And I wanted Richard to know that his dad was willing to get up and drive a long way at his own expense to help him and his friends. I wanted him to see that was an expression of my heart for him, that I was willing to serve him and his friends so that their lives will be better. When we're going on holiday, do we ever pray about it? Do our kids see us saying, hey, where should we go on holiday this year? Let's pray about it. See what God wants for us. Not just the holiday we want to take, but where's God leading us? How's he going to provide the finances for it? Do our kids see us praying over finances? We were mentioning to somebody yesterday that uh, Karis' old school, the King's School, they uh, in, in Whitney, they used to take children on a trip to Africa, to Uganda, and they'd do mud hut building. Well, just after we moved here, it would have been Karis's turn to go, and the school said, well, we know you've moved away, but you can still come. Ah, oh, but there's a lot of hundreds of pounds that's going to need. So Karis says to me, 
Dad, could I go? Well, we didn't have the finances. We just moved and put all our money into that. I said, here's a great chance for you to learn how to generate finances by faith. So we sat down and prayed. Within 24 hours, we had all the money. Just kept, Somebody phoned me up about three hours after we prayed and said, God's been speaking to me. I'd like to give your family a gift. Is there anything uh, you know, we should give this money for? I said, how much do you need? So I just told him. They wrote a check out for exactly the right amount. I said, that, that's, that's what Karis needs. See, that's how you discover God in your life. He's real. He's good. He, he does things. He releases things. He, he releases finances and blessing in accordance with his purposes for your life. And you train your children in those things when they see you pray with them and when they learn to pray with them. I was always encouraged by our children that you know, if, if anybody was sick, the first reaction was, let's pray. Sometimes I'd be saying, oh, let's just call the doctor. Go, no, Gab, we've got to pray. They would call me up short sometimes. That's great. That's our practices. That's how we pass these things on. You know, I've watched some families are so protective about their family life. Their, their, family, their priorities go God, themselves, their family, and then nothing else. They stop at that point. You can't make your family an idol. You have to be really godly with it. But your kids need to see you serving the Lord. So if you sit at home and say, oh, I'm feeling a bit tired this morning. Let's not go to the meeting. What are they going to grow up to think? Oh, it's all right not to go to the meeting if you feel tired. If they see you at home saying, hey, listen, I feel a bit rough this morning, but I'm going to the meeting because God can heal me there. I'm going to the meeting because I've got work to do. I'm going to push myself and push through this barrier and make it work. Then the kids are going to say, oh, a meeting is something you push through and you go to because God's there. And, you know, you get blessed and you get touched. They see that and they copy it and they learn that value by, by your example and your practice. If I've seen parents... Be so protective. Well, we're not doing this because this is our family time. This is our special time. Well, have your family time with the Lord. Say, let's all go to the meeting. Let's all go and do this. I had to go to Kazakhstan a couple of times. said, well, come with me. I asked the Kazakhstan government, can I bring my children next time? What? Yeah. We're talking about pupils in school. I'll bring you a couple of English school pupils since I'm lecturing on, on education. I'll bring you a couple. You can... You know, they, they spoke, they helped people practice their English. They answered questions about their education, their upbringing. They became a part of that work with me. Take your children with you. Involve them in the ministry. When we did leadership training, our kids came with us. They helped us set up all the obstacle courses and, and set traps for people. They love doing that. Um, you know, involve them in the ministry. You know, when, we, when we went somewhere, we would say, could you release us this weekend? Would you mind being looked after so that we could serve God? We would normally take you, but this one we can't. Would it be all right for us to go? And we would train them to say yes. We would train them to, to make that sacrifice so that they would learn that that's what you do in God's purposes. So our practices really matter. Next one, our questions. Here's a statement. A powerful question is often more powerful than a powerful answer. See, we live in a very convenient society that wants an instant solution to everything. We don't cook our food anymore. We nuke it in the microwave for two minutes. And we want instant dinners, don't we? We don't, we don't want to save up for anything. We want to instantly spend that money now. We want instant goods, instant satisfaction, instant everything. But you know, instant answers are not a good idea. Don't give your kids the answers. Give them the questions. Let, talk with them about the same questions that you have to struggle with. 
and leave them with the questions. Don't hand them out the answers. Make them work with you for the answers. They may come up with a better answer than us. I hope they do. We're looking at some of the world's problems now, and my generation hasn't been able to solve them. Energy crisis, for one. I hope future generations come up with a better answer than we have. When we engage in the big questions in life with our children, that's when they really get this thing. That's when they really feel part of it. That's when they really feel they can join in and talk to us. Dad, how are we going to get people saved? How are we going to grow a cell? How are we going to break through in healing in the church? How are we going to get through in prayer? How are we going to grow the church? How are we going to fill the football stadium? When they're thinking about those questions, they're on board with the vision. So talk about the big questions with them, but don't give them the big answers. Let them provide the answers and coach the answers out of them. That's a good idea. Do you think anybody's ever tried that one? What do you think happened when they did? Mm. Well, it kind of worked, it kind of didn't. What do you think could be an answer? How could we overcome that problem? Ask them the big questions. Talk about the big questions with them and engage them in the big questions that we're also engaged in in life. And when we do, we will be passing on the heart and spirit of the Word of God. And here's the fourth thing. Our symbols. I taught a very, very nice lad at school. He was a lovely Christian boy, came from a Christian family. His dad was a Baptist pastor. And all through his school life, this kid took a lot of stick from the kids around him, and he stayed true to his faith all the way through. He never buckled or wavered. He was good-natured as can be all the way through from the age of, well, when I took them at year 9, so 14 through to 18. I watched him for a four or five-year period, and he was just a great guy. He left that school strong in the faith as when he came. And I met his dad a few years later, and then I began to understand why. His dad was a godly Baptist pastor, a man of integrity. Now, here's what happened. His dad was particularly into you know, not polluting the planet, not driving big cars and all the rest of it. His dad rode a bicycle everywhere. We're back to bicycles again. And... At first I thought, it's a bit old-fashioned, isn't it? You know, bike, vicar on a bike. But he was consistent with his beliefs. And he presented his son with a consistent view of the world. So he said, son, I don't want to gobble up the resources of this planet just for my own sake and for no good reason. And to that end, when the son looked out the window, he saw a bicycle on the, on the, on the drive. So the symbol his dad gave him was a bicycle, which matched the things he was telling him over tea. So what happens in our Christian walk where we say, well, the gospel really matters, and we should be kind to people, and material things don't really matter, and then dad comes home with a car like that and puts it on the drive? See, what message does that send to the kids? Oh, dad can say this stuff, but really he's got the super-duper GT executive model with all the whistles and bells that cost tens of thousands of dollars or pounds. See, the symbols we send our children need to be consistent with the things we say. And so often I've seen in Christian homes symbols that don't match up. I'll tell you another symbol, the empty place at the dinner table. Son, I really love you, but I've got to stay at work tonight. Now, we believe in being good employers for our, uh, good employees for our employers, but we believe in being good employees in the Lord. That's different than being a good employee. 
In the Lord means you come home and you take your place at the dinner table. You might stay on a bit extra to help lock up, but you don't stay there all night to advance your career. Your family is important. And you don't leave that empty place at the dinner table. You say to the boss, sorry, do this tomorrow. And if he wants, if he's that upset about it, he can get somebody else to do the job because my family comes there first. You go home, you sit at the dinner table, say, hey, guys, great to be with you. Sorry I'm a couple of minutes late, but I'm here. Let's pray, bless God, and let's talk about something big and meaningful in life. Newcastle United or whatever. Seriously, though, the symbols we send our children really matter. It's no good saying, God loves you, Daddy loves you, but I'm not coming home again. That's the wrong symbol. And there are many, many symbols we send to our children, and they have to line up with what we say is the true word of God. Otherwise, our kids get the message, well, Daddy says it, or Mummy says it, but it doesn't really matter. It's just talk. And with those four things, our symbols, our questions, um, the other two now, our practices and our story. I changed, I changed these from the book. They were a bit highbrow intellectual there. And I didn't like the words in it. Our story and our practices. With those four things, we can really pass on our kingdom Bible culture to our children. As I said earlier, that's not a once a week Bible study. That's a whole day, every day life thing that should be fun, interactive. I believe God wants us to win our children. Let me give you a conclusion here, which is that statement I made earlier. The responsibility, parents, is ours and ours alone. Am I living by the word of God? Am I setting the example? Am I passing this on as the Shema, as the word of God calls me to? Let me reiterate again, parents, we are here to help you in that, in every way we can, But here's one challenge for you. When we come to help you, you'll find the challenge will come to your own life as well. But that's okay, because that's how we grow in the Lord as well. And everybody should end up as a winner if we go through that process together.